You're listening to a podcast from Burley Heads Church of Christ, from Burley Heads on the Gold Coast. Thanks, Steve. So, we're continuing in our, uh, well, actually, we're completing our uh, short series on 1 Corinthians by looking at Paul's discussion of the importance of the resurrection. So, nice relevant topic today. Let's start by praying. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, reveal your word to us. Write it on our hearts and help us to live it out. Be with me this morning as I share your word and help us all to receive your life. Amen. Now, first I want to set the scene for what we're talking about um, by sharing uh, a story about me. Way back in the last century, (laughs) in the year of our Lord, 1990 to be precise, I made the mistake of asking God to get me out of a spiritual rut. Never do that unless you're prepared for the consequences, because immediately I was laid off from my job. I'd only been there for less than a year. Fortunately, I received an offer to go to Tokyo, Japan for an interview before I'd even finished out my notice period. And with the trepidation that can only be felt by a country boy whose experience was limited to Queensland, so Brisbane was the big city, and this is Brisbane of 1990, I flew off to Tokyo for a week. I hated the place. It was crowded, it was devoid of nature, it was confusing, it was cramped, and the food was awful. In fact, so bizarre was the food that I mostly ate at Western fast food joints like McDonald's and KFC, (laughs) which were predictably unsatisfying especially the Japanese version. (laughs) Nonetheless, I decided that this was what God had for me. I prayed to get out of spiritual rut and the job itself looked interesting and it was sort of, I, I thought that God wanted to challenge me with surviving in such a hostile place. I guess I viewed it as a, a monastery of sorts. I would eat little, I'd be silent most of the time and I'd grow spiritually, hopefully. Of course, it didn't turn out like that at all. Yes, I did grow spiritually in Tokyo, but, but that was more to do with relationships and, and, uh, than, than physical deprivation. Indeed, Tokyo turned out to be a wonderful place to live in many ways, full of marvellous food, despite my first impression, Fascinating places and endless activities. Wonderful hikes in in beautiful forest-covered mountains abounded. Just a train ride away. It was a two-hour train ride, but in Tokyo it takes an hour to get anywhere. So two hours isn't that bad. In fact, I look back on that time in Tokyo with great fondness and... And every so often I'm overwhelmed with homesickness for that 
distant, strange place. It doesn't hurt that I met my wife Mabel at Tokyo Baptist Church. <laughs> that was a good thing to bring home. Although I had to pursue her once I got home. So we didn't get married until we were back here. You know, sometimes I think that uh, we Christians have a similar attitude to our future resurrected lives that, with God that, that I had to Tokyo. We, we think we've seen it. We think we understand it. You know, we've spent a week there on an interview or whatever. We, we, we think that, that heaven is all about these boring activities like playing a harp or singing or something. Not that singing's boring for some of us. Um, but we think there's lots of restrictions. There's nothing enjoyable. So we really don't look forward to the resurrection at all. Sure, it'll be good for us and we'll get closer to God, but it's not really something that we look forward to. And the Corinthian church had a similar attitude. They were so into spiritual gifts that they had got to the point where some of them were saying that there would be no resurrection of the dead. Whether they thought they were better off as naked spirits, since spiritual gifts are where it's all happening, or whether they thought that this lifetime is, is, is the best reward, this lifetime, it's, it's unclear. But whatever their motive for dismissing the resurrection, Paul was having none of it. Let's turn to Paul now in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 3, he says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Why did Paul think that Christ's death and resurrection was the most important thing he taught the Corinthian church? Corinthians themselves seemed to think that the work of the Holy Spirit was more important. And, and the message of love in chapter 13, like, isn't that pretty important? Right? That's what we would probably say was the most important. But Paul said that the message of Jesus' death, burial and resurrection was the most important part of the good news that he shared. Fortunately, he didn't leave either us or the Corinthians wondering why he thought so. A few words later, he continued, And if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised and if Christ has not been raised then your faith is 
useless and you're still guilty of your sins. In that case, all who died believing in Christ are lost. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Wow. If our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. Those are strong words. Another way of putting this is, if we think our Christianity is about being able to be good people, we're sadly wrong. If we think our faith yields an abundant life now, we're hopelessly off target. If we think our religion is for the betterment of this world, we're disastrously mistaken. If we think our spirits can escape the world through the work of Christ and we don't need bodies, we've grossly misled ourselves. It's not just first century Corinthians who need to hear this message. 21st century Westerners desperately need to hear and understand this too. You see, our lives are so comfortable. This is Burley. This is where we're comfortable. <laughs> it's easy to think we're already in heaven, right? Look at that. Doesn't that look like heaven? We mistake abundant material goods, beautiful houses, wonderful food, cheap travel, endless entertainment, beautiful beaches. We mistake that for abundant life. But consumption is not life. It might fool us for a while, but eventually a life of profligacy leaves us alone and empty. Even in Jesus' day, people struggled with this. In fact, you might remember Jesus' story of the prodigal son, which shared that idea. And part of the message of that story is that consumption never provides lasting joy. Despite what Amazon might tell us or Apple promise us, there's no product that can take away our longing for purpose, for relationships, for meaning. Our culture tells us that we can change careers, we can change our face, maybe some other parts of us, change our whole bodies. But we can't change our need for reconciliation with one another. And most especially, we can't change our need for God's love in our lives. There's nothing in this world that can make us actually belong here. We're doomed to be aliens in this world, always restless, always yearning for more. And the only way we can avoid this pain is to, is to dull our senses with indulgence or distractions. But even then the pain shoots through every so often. When we lose someone we love, when we fail at something important, when we're disappointed in our latest toy. Christianity recognises the emptiness of this world. It's, it's, it's inability to feed our hunger for relationship with God. 
And yet at the same time, at the same time, Christianity recognises that we are embodied souls. We're not merely spirits. We're not desperate to escape this physical reality and flee to some perfect home in the spiritual realm. God created this physical realm and made us body and spirit together. And his, his design was and still is a good and beautiful design. So, so we're stuck in this, in this dilemma. We can never be fully at home in this world and yet we'll never be fully at home without our bodies either. And that's why if we're doomed to nothing but this life, we of all people are the most miserable. We know that this life is empty. But without the resurrection of the body, there's only emptiness in this life and afterwards. So without the resurrection of the body, all of reality is empty and ultimately meaningless drudgery. We may get the occasional flash of enjoyment, but at the end of it all, we'll just be alone and sad. But, of course, the resurrection is real. Jesus was raised. We do have the hope of eternal, full relationship with God. Paul even reminds the Corinthians of the array of witnesses to the, to the reality that Jesus rose again, that his body was made new. Of course, these witnesses are lost to us, long dead. Can we too be sure of the resurrection? Well, the answer to that is yes. We can be confident that Jesus did die, was buried and was raised to life on the third day. How? Well, recently the scholar, recently as in the last couple of decades, the scholar Gary Habermas has developed a case for the history, the historicity of the resurrection, which he calls the minimal facts argument for the resurrection. Now the idea is you choose a small selection of historical facts that any rational, um, open-minded historian, Christian or not, will agree are most likely true. You only need a few facts. Then you demonstrate how the resurrection is by far the most likely explanation for these facts. Now, note that I don't say the only explanation because you know, all sorts of weird things happen all the time, so it's hard to say this is the only explanation. But if you can demonstrate that the resurrection is the most likely explanation, then sensible people will believe that it's true. This approach has been taken up by a variety of people, mostly apologists, which is what I've studied and where I've come across this. And they structure the argument with a range of different facts. The fact is that as Christians, we're fortunate to have such a rich historical record that we've got 
we've got reliable facts for the picking. Our position is that strong. But this morning I'll use Habermas's selection of historical facts in this brief outline. So let me run through the argument. The historical facts are, one, there's only five in this, one, Jesus died by crucifixion and was buried. Two, days later his followers had real experiences they thought were appearances of the risen Jesus. Right? Three, their lives were transformed as a result to the point of being willing to die for their belief in the resurrection. Four, these beliefs were taught very soon after the crucifixion, as in a matter of years. James, the unbelieving brother of Jesus, and Paul, this is the fifth fact. So both James, you remember James, the brother of Jesus who didn't believe in Jesus while he was alive, and Paul, the persecutor of the early Christians, they each became convinced that they had seen the resurrected Jesus and they went on to die for this. Now these historical facts are generally accepted and they're well attested by both the Gospels and other ancient documents. So most reasonable, rational historians will accept these facts, even if they don't believe in the supernatural or in Jesus as, a, as the saviour of the world. So, how can we explain these facts? What possible historical events could be behind these facts? Let's look at the options that people have come up with over the last 2,000 years. So they're probably all of the options um, because 2,000 years of trying to figure this out is a long time and believe me there have been lots of people who've been trying to disprove the historicity of Jesus' resurrection. So there are lots of theories. So let's see which one is the most likely. Let's start with one of the most popular explanations that Jesus didn't die on the cross but that he entered a deep swoon. That means he fainted, basically. So his, the cross was so devastating, he lost so much blood, he, he collapsed and, and went into a deep swoon that people mistook as death they put him in the tomb, so that explains his burial and possibly it explains his, experience, his appearance to the disciples because he woke up. But it would have been clear to his followers, given what he'd just been through, that he was not resurrected. He would have been hobbling around and barely able to put two words together. And so they would not have gone on to their deaths for that false belief, though they might have taught something soon afterwards. It seems, seems it would have been something different to the New Testament. And uh, the enemies would never have been persuaded by this sort of situation. So swooning fails to explain these five historical facts. Can't even explain these five. Of course, we've chosen these five carefully. What about the idea that the disciples went to the wrong tomb and found it empty? Now, this is different from the disciples deliberately going to the wrong tomb. This is an accident. They accidentally went to the wrong tomb, found it empty, and as everyone does, jumped to the explanation that Jesus was resurrected. Well, actually, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Because it can't, it can account for the execution and burial, but it can't explain his appearance to his followers because they didn't find him. And 
it, it can't explain their transformation and it can't explain the stories that they wrote and it can't explain the conversion of the enemies of Jesus. So this is a big fail, although it's a pretty popular one. How about the disciples stealing the body? So they stole the body, perhaps just on a whim. Perhaps this is the oldest alternative explanation. We even find it in the Gospels. But it's a pretty poor explanation because it doesn't, it doesn't explain the disciples' behaviour afterwards, nor the way it influenced others. So that's a big fail. But what if the disciples had got together and came up with a cunning plan, like Blackadder, to build a legend about the resurrection of Jesus? In this account, Jesus could have died and been buried, then the disciples pretended to see him, maybe they stole his body, and they started teaching this very early. But why would they go to their deaths for an empty lie that they knew was an empty lie? Surely by that time they would have gone, nah, bail out, bail out, this is a bad scam. And why would their enemies believe them when they had nothing but these fatuous stories? So I think this is a fail. What about the natural development of a legend? This idea that over time the stories of Jesus were spun into elaborate supernatural tales this was actually, believe it or not, this is or was the favourite explanation of the 19th century Bible scholars called the higher critics and today it remains to this very day a favourite with many liberal churches who don't think that Jesus actually rose again, which as Paul has said is unfortunate for them. But... Unfortunately, double, a double unfortunate uh, thing for this belief is that this, this is an embarrassingly useless explanation. It just doesn't account for the extreme behaviour of the original or the new disciples, nor for the early teaching of the resurrection. The higher critics liked this one because back then they didn't know how early the scriptures actually were. They didn't have the, the evidence that we have today that, that there are, are copies of the gospel. We've got copies of parts of the gospel from as early as the beginning of the second century, which is only um, 70 years after Jesus, which is not enough time to develop a, a, um, a legend. But the higher critics didn't know that. Still, it was a pretty silly idea even back then. How about a mass hallucination? This is another good one. You can get a whole book on this one if you want. Putting aside the unlikeliness of such an event, let's just neglect that, does it explain our historical facts? No, it does not, because the enemies of Jesus, especially Paul, weren't there for the mass hallucination. So we need to add extra hallucinations for all of these, which, which makes this already unbelievable explanation, I think, completely fantastical. I mean, you can believe it, but you've got to have faith. So... What about the existence of a secret twin? There's a book on this one too. This is actually a pretty good explanation of putting aside the difficulty of keeping an identical twin secret until the right moment. But it doesn't fit well with James, especially becoming a believer. Remember, he was Jesus' brother. You would have had to keep this secret twin secret from James his whole life. 
and suddenly he pops up at the end. And so it doesn't account for Paul either because Paul's encounter with Jesus was of a different kind as we read in Acts. Um, so it's almost there, but it fails at the last hurdle. So that's all of the alternative explanations that we have. There's one left. What about the explanation that Jesus actually died and was buried and then was raised to life again? This explanation, well, unsurprisingly, I guess, fits all the facts perfectly. The only problem with this explanation, and it's a big one, it's a doozy, you need to believe in the existence of God and that he's a God that actually reaches into the world and does stuff. Fortunately, there are plenty of reasons to believe that it's much more likely that precisely this God exists. The evidence against his existence is when you examine it rationally, pretty weak. So the necessity of God for this explanation is only a problem for you if you have some personal irrational reason for rejecting the existence of God. I'm assuming that most of you don't. If you want to hear some of these, if you want to talk about some of these sorts of reasons, uh, feel free to come and talk to me. That's the sort of stuff that I've, that I've spent time studying. Um, and I can assure you that these aren't just empty words. There are very good reasons to believe uh, in the existence of a God that does precisely this sort of thing. So from this table, you can see that the weight of the widely accepted historical evidence leads us to believe that the most likely explanation is that Jesus actually did die, was buried, and was raised to life again. The most reasonable position to have on the resurrection of Christ is that it's a true <coughs> historical event. So now that we can be confident like the Corinthians could be that Jesus did rise again, we can answer the question you might have been wondering about all this time. Or you may not have been, but I hope you were. Why is this so important? Now, Paul has already said that our faith would be useless if Jesus hadn't been raised and explained that we would have been still guilty of our sins. But why is that? He explains this immediately. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, that was Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Jesus' resurrection, you see, is the first resurrection to the new body. Previous resurrections such as that of Lazarus or the son of the widow of Nain or the son of the widow of uh, Zarephath, which um, I think that was Elisha resurrected, these are all merely reviving or revivifying an existing body, which then went on to die. So Lazarus went on to die. But Jesus' body Jesus' body is never going to die. 
He's opened the way for eternal life. Paul continues to explain this. He says, but let me reveal to you, let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, in the blink of an eye, when the, least, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God, he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord. For you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Wow. It's hard for me to read this without wanting to burst into the recitative and aria from the end of Handel's Messiah. I'm not going to do that for your sake. But what stirring stuff. Here Paul shares the mystery of our faith. It's ultimately not about this life, but the next. When God comes to judge us all, Jesus' death and resurrection rescues us from the, from the fate we were destined for, for the punishment we deserved. And so instead of being cast out of the light, the warmth and the goodness of God's presence, we are transformed. These perishable, body, these perishable bodies, these, these bodies with which we've struggled through our lives will be transformed just as our souls have already been. No longer will there be this struggle of, of, of spirit and flesh as our bodies tempt us with, with the vigorous desires and lusts of youth. No longer will we endure the weariness and, and the pain of age. No longer will we be betrayed through our body's weakness into, into selfishness and loneliness. No, in their place, we will receive immortal bodies. To the church in Thessalonica, Paul explains this exchange as natural bodies exchanged for spiritual bodies. To the Corinthians, he says, dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our faith, our faith is not about the pathetic benefits of prosperity in the midst of a sinful, suffering world. 
here we're trapped in, in rebellious, dying bodies. Like, what sort of a reward is that? We're not here on earth so that we can enjoy deadly affluence while others suffer deadly deprivation. The promised Sabbath rest is not found in the midst of temptation, pain and loss. Rather, what our faith points towards is this great victory, the victory over death. No longer will death and sin have any hold over us, but rather we will be ruled by our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. We'll dwell with him in joyful wonder, free from temptation and suffering. Praise God. But of course, for all of us here, this is in the future. We are, after all, still trapped in our bodies that we were born in, right? Jesus hasn't come again to judge the living and the dead. I don't think that happened this morning. I hope not. <laughs> so what impact does this future have on our present lives? We live in the present. So regardless of how certain this future is or how close or distant we may feel from it, what does it have to do with us today? Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., the famous American physician, who's actually famous for this quote, he once said, some people are so heavenly minded that they are no earthly good. Have you heard that one before? Yep. Nothing could be further from the truth. Throughout the ages, Christians have demonstrated the lie of these words. Hospitals, universities, orphanages, charities, the abolition of slavery and an endless list of worldly goods have been forged by heavenly-minded Christians and not by worldly-minded people. Why? Paul's last words in this letter, before he turns to practical matters, are to urge the Corinthians to live in the present according to their knowledge of their heavenly reward. He says, So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Our confidence in our eternal state gives us strength. It makes, a, it makes it impossible for this, this transient, ephemeral world to shake us or, or shift us from our foundation in Christ. We cannot help but strive for Christ if we understand our true destiny. Our enthusiasm for the gospel will be endless. Our confidence in God's plans will be unlimited. We will share God's boundless love for his earthly creatures. It's only to the extent that we are truly heavenly minded that we become genuine, of genuine earthly good. 
So often we struggle to obey Jesus, to, to live godly lives. We struggle with injustice, with, with our own doubts, with pain and sickness and weakness and weariness and a, a simple lack of enthusiasm. Paul's already placed this into perspective earlier in this letter. He said, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, Paul's light and momentary affliction was probably a little heavier and longer than our light and momentary affliction, so we can take comfort in that. But even suffering and persecution, let alone age and frustration and the distractions of, of a material world, of a materialistic world, those things can't slow us down when we keep our eyes fixed on that eternal weight of glory. So for all of us, like the Corinthians, let us be certain that Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And in that knowledge, we can go out, no matter where we live, no matter what we do, no matter who we are, or what our abilities, we can go out and be strong and immovable, working enthusiastically for the Lord, knowing that nothing we do for him is ever useless. There's no more meaningful life. No greater purpose. No more wonderful way to spend our days. Let's pray. Lord, as your word tells us, we will do. Fill us with confidence in this wonderful truth of your resurrection. Help us, like the disciples, to live transformed lives. Help us, like the disciples, to transform our world. In the name of your beloved Son, our Lord, we pray. Amen. So now let's respond to our wonderful God by doing what? What should we do? Perhaps worship him? Let's do that.